3: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the COVID-19 pandemic has amplified America's hunger crisis.
4: A country with billionaires should not have hungry people. This is a matter of inequality and to Blake's point, it is a social justice issue that we should all be paying attention to.
1: On this special edition of Closer Look, it's a coffee conversation with a panel discussion on addressing Georgia's food insecure communities. But first, this, of course, the news is the latest federal stimulus package, which does address food insecurity by allocating $13 billion to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. The package also provides rental assistance and extends a federal eviction moratorium. The $900 billion legislation heads to President Donald Trump's desk today. Now, the Senate approved the measure last night after many months, many months of back and forth. Meanwhile, the federal relief package comes at a time when COVID-19 cases remain elevated for much of the country. Of course, that includes right here in Georgia. At the time of this broadcast, 512,699 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed here in the state. 39,502 people have been hospitalized, and of those... 7,055 considered ICU admissions. Now, back in March, when the state began recording all of this information, we're up to 9,453 deaths that have been confirmed. This, of course, is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And finally, a little bit of sports news for you. For the sixth time, producer Grace Walker's UGA Bulldogs are headed to the Chick fil A Peach Bowl. They're going to lose, Grace. <laughs> The Bulldogs will face the University of Cincinnati Bearcats, who actually went undefeated this season, Grace. The game takes place at noon from Mercedes-Benz Stadium here in Atlanta on New Year's Day. If you're looking to get tickets, keep in mind now attendance at the stadium will be limited to 25 percent capacity for this game. And this is Closer Look. Go Bulldogs. I did that for Grace Walker. And closer look continues now here on 90.1 wabe this is atlanta's choice for npr i'm real scott in this month's virtual coffee conversations our panel discussed georgia's food insecure communities what's working and what challenges still exist we'll join the conversation with the introduction of the panelists first up robin Channon. she's executive director of global growers she'll tell you what they do in just a moment Mike Carnathan from the Atlanta Regional Commission. He's the head of research and analytics, or as I call him, the big data guy. Also, Blake Osborne. He's the director of programming with the Atlanta-based Lowry Institute. Commissioner Tom Rawlins, director of the State Division of Family and Children's Services. And Letitia Springer, founder of the Free 99 Fridge. You'll find out what she does in just a moment. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for taking the time as they all come Director Rawlings, I want to start with you because you heard me mention how many more households. We're talking about 50 million this year due to the pandemic experiencing hunger. And it's estimated here in Georgia it's over a million. And just for those who are watching this that may not believe that, that is a fact. We're talking about a million households, if not more, that are experiencing hunger at this very moment.
0: That's right. Um, Rose, we... For example going back to february before the pandemic we had a typical month in our food stamp issuance which is of course our main uh, uh food security program that we administer here in georgia mm-hmm. when 163 million in february the pandemic hit uh this coming month december and in november uh, in each of those months we expect to issue about 315 to 318 million dollars in food stamp benefits So we've seen an increase in our rolls of about uh, 35% during this time period. It got a little bit better during the summer when the COVID uh, crisis settled a little bit, but we are certainly expecting that it's going to get worse and continue, certainly as we get into the winter months. So we do have a significant issue here.
1: And Director Rawlings, folks should understand this is not an urban problem. It's not a small town problem. It's not a rural problem. It's a problem throughout the state of Georgia. Correct.
0: It hits every single part of our economy because if you think about it, the, the businesses that have been most affected are the hospitality, the restaurant, the service industries, um, and the, we have those folks working all across the state. And so, as these businesses have had to shut down, as they have lost money from you know folks being afraid to come into a restaurant, for example, uh, because of fear of the virus, um, then it's really impacted every single section of Georgia, all 159 counties from mm. a uh, all the way up to Blairsville.
1: Mike mm. Carnathan, I want to bring you in the conversation because often when I have these conversations and folks will email me and they say, well, you know, what data do you have to, to support this? And that's what we do as journalists anyway. But I want you, the reason why we wanted you to be a part of this conversation, because you have that snapshot. When we talk about food insecurity throughout the Atlanta region, The metro region. What does that look like? I mean, we've looked at several things,
5: and and, you know, I think earlier this week we talked about a survey that we recently conducted called Metro Atlanta Speaks, and you know, we wanted to get uh, a more recent snapshot, kind of a real time insights about um, how life has been affected by COVID, and so we asked a question. Um, how, you know, have you received food from a food bank? It was a very specific question. Have you, have you received food from a food bank uh, during the pandemic? And, and then the results are pretty startling. It was 18% of respondents said yes, that they had received food from a food bank. And that's pretty consistent of what we've heard uh, both locally and nationally, mm-hmm. and then if you really dive into it, you'll see that you know, based on where your jurisdiction is, um, that can be as many as one in three people. So one in three mm-hmm. uh, individuals from the city of Atlanta have had to receive food from a food bank since March, um, mm-hmm. and that's just and that's just a staggering number.
1: One in three. Letitia, I want to bring you into the conversation because your grassroots efforts are helping the very folks that Director Rawlings and Mike just talked about. But before we get to that, for folks who don't know about Free 99 Fridge, tell them about it.
2: Yeah, sure. So Free 99 Fridge is a mutual aid initiative here in Atlanta providing free food access to anyone in the community who needs food. So we have secondhand refrigerators out in outdoor spaces available for 27 24 7 access for anyone who wants food they can just come and get it anyone can put food in and anyone can take food out so the community has really come behind this movement and is providing food for neighbors supporting neighbors we're all just rallying together to help feed each other
1: and robin over at global growers who are y'all assisting what's your mission there
2: Sure. So
4: Global Growers Network exists to respond to what we see, and I think all of us on this call see as as an unacceptable reality. Uh, And that is that we see highly experienced food producers, uh, folks that we work with who have come to this country primarily through refugee resettlement programs. So folks who were experienced food producers are now considered to be food insecure. And that is unacceptable to us. And so since 2010, Global Growers Network has partnered with more than 300 diverse families who have come to this country through refugee resettlement programs to connect them uh, to land, agricultural resources, and markets uh, to support their food security and also to support their self-sufficiency in this country as they are rebuilding their lives. And one of the things that, we are excited about is the extent to which they've been able to contribute this year to community hunger and food mm-hmm. security initiatives using their skills, using their talent um, and their remarkable resiliency.
1: And we're going to dig deeper into that in just a second. I want to bring Blake Osborne to this because Blake over at the Lowry Institute, you all had a focus on a specific demographic, college students.
3: Yeah. Um, prior to the pandemic, uh, we Uh, at the Lowry Institute had been working with college students who were facing uh, food insecurity. It was even before COVID rampaged and uh, devastated our collegiate communities, forcing students to go home, we found out that there were a large number of students, particularly in Atlanta, who were having to decide between ordering textbooks and ordering food. Mm -hmm. And this to us was, to use the word of the day, unacceptable. And so we created a campus food pantry on the AUC campus. We were giving out about 100 uh packages of food that were about a week's worth of food give or take to these students and we've only seen that need continue as -hmm. things have gotten worse and as students have become displaced and so uh we take a look at this issue focused primarily through the collegiate mindset like Mm -hmm. you're trying to make sure we're identifying with these college students who we serve who we view as our future and trying to put them in the best position for success and in this instance it requires looking at the issue of food insecurity, not just mm-hmm. on a day-to-day level, but also on a research, a, a policy level, and trying to figure out the best strategies for institutions and other organizations to deal with this crisis.
1: So now we've addressed some specific demographics of who is in need. Director Rollins, we're going to come back to you. From a state level, do you have all the funding that you all, need? I think I know the answer to this, Maybe money isn't just always the answer, but what resources are you all missing to be able to fully address as it relates to hunger and those households that you talked about when we started this conversation? So, Rose,
0: fortunately, most of our food security funds do come from the federal government. So we have really three things going on right now. We have our regular food stamp program. Mm -hmm. When the coronavirus crisis hit, uh, Congress also authorized us to give to each family the maximum amount of food stamps for that family, regardless of their income. So that's increased our each family's uh, amount of uh, food, you might say, per month uh, dramatically. And then, as you know, we also, uh, this summer, uh, because we had so many children who were out of school from March until May, uh, we were able to institute the PEBT program to, to reimburse those families whose children should have been receiving free and reduced lunches at school to reimburse them for that amount. So we have been able to issue about $3 billion in food benefits directly to families since the crisis began. I think, of course, what we uh, are going to continue to struggle with is making sure that we can do this in a timely and efficient manner. As you can imagine, we had to shift from a system in which a lot of folks were coming into our offices Mm -hmm. to get food or to get uh, food stamps or benefits to uh, doing everything online. Fortunately, the uh, our, our budgetary folks, the legislature, have been very kind to us about making sure that we had the technology in place. And so we've been able to do really well, as well as benefiting from a number of federal waivers that allowed us to do things more efficiently, more quickly, uh, really emphasizing getting those benefits out there as opposed to uh, maybe doing some of the administrative paperwork that we used to do.
1: But here's a challenge, too, for so many folks. We've, we've talked about this before, where especially in some of the rural communities, where connectivity is an issue. If folks are experiencing hunger, more than likely they may be experiencing connectivity issues. So it could lead someone to think you're probably missing out on serving a lot of people.
0: Sure. So we have two different ways, really three different ways of getting uh, benefits. We, of course, have a call center uh, and a lot of things. We're ha- able to handle everything. You can do your entire application via phone we do have the online uh resource and of course we understand that a lot of folks especially in our elderly and disabled population don't have access necessarily to good internet or to uh, or may not be technology literate we also have of course our our community partners many of the food banks the other uh, community agencies we work with who are able to help folks get benefits and we actually do if folks really need to come into an office Uh, We will still go in, sit down with them, schedule a meeting, make sure they get the benefits that they need. Um, And of course, I think the other thing, Rose, is we really are working very carefully with our food bank partners. Mm -hmm. We know that they have been stretched to the limits. Uh, We, of course, have the Georgia Nutrition Assistance Program and, in fact, uh, gave about a million dollars to that program in September to really beef up their ability to get food out the door. I think the other thing that has been really important for us is that we started uh, working with Amazon and with uh, um, Walmart and now with Aldi uh, through um, one of the food delivery companies. I can't remember which one now, Mm -hmm. but now folks are able to actually go online, order their food uh, and have it delivered to their house. And that's really important, especially for folks with transportation issues, especially for elderly folks who don't need, or folks who are immunocompromised, who don't need to be out in the community. We need to do everything we can to make it easy for these folks to get their food.
1: So before I move on, let me understand you clearly. So folks who have the SNAP benefits with their EBT card, they can go online and order food.
0: Correct. And have it shipped to their house. Will that remain or is that going to change? No, this is something that was a pilot beforehand. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, I think they piloted it in Florida and maybe a couple of other states But we anticipate that this is going to be uh, a permanent fixture now of our food security program in this country, because I think we've all realized that, you know, it's not enough to have the benefits. You also have to be able to go out and get those benefits and really use those benefits. Mm -hmm. And if you are isolated in your home, if you're disabled, if you don't have transportation, if you're medically fragile, how are you going to do that if you don't have someone to help you? So the more that we can have folks go online and order their food and have it shipped to them, the better off they are.
1: I want to focus now on undocumented or immigrant or refugee populations. Uh, Before I move on though, Commissioner Rollins, if someone, if a household is considered undocumented, are they eligible for any assistance from the state?
0: The children are. So oftentimes, and not all children, but Many times what we see, and of course, as you know, Rose, I I worked with the Mexican consulate as Mm an attorney with them for a number of years. So very familiar with this population. Certainly, refugees have been approved for a number of programs. But we also know that uh, with our uh, undocumented population, many of these parents have children who are eligible for these benefits. So they can apply on behalf of their children and get food stamps. Mm -hmm. with the pebt program for example uh your your really your status as documented or undocumented did not matter uh if you were uh in school and needed those fun you know those uh food products or that those assistance you could go online and apply for it or or get your card without any really any concern all
1: right i want to shift into robin because you heard what commissioner rollins just said um can you Paint a picture for our audience who may not understand the challenges for, particularly the group that you are serving, in trying to access and what Director Rollins just talked about access the system to get assistance.
4: It is. It's a significant issue, and and in a past in a past life in a past role, um, I have you know supported many families with their food stamp applications, Um, and you know it has certainly improved over the years but it is challenging mm-hmm. um, to navigate. It's challenging for me to navigate. And I am a college educated, computer literate, fluent English speaker um, who can get through these systems. But um, nonetheless, I've spent upwards of seven hours on hold just to get a food stamp application in. I've had whoa, online systems whoa, whoa. break down, and it's difficult.
1: Robin, you said seven hours?
4: Um, Yes, and this is this was years ago before things moved online. Okay. On. Um, and as I said, it it has improved, but it's challenging and it's demoralizing and it's difficult to need to take a full day off of work just to get those benefits. Um, and we oftentimes will see families who have lapsed benefits and then go into crisis, and that's difficult. It may be that they didn't. Um, receive a mailing, or it Mm -hmm. may be that they did, but because they are not um, fluent English speakers or have lower literacy levels, they were not aware that that was going to happen until they get to the grocery store, take out their electronic benefits transfer card and have that not go through. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that leaves families hungry at that stage. So the system is there um, and it should support these families, but we know there's holes and we know that there's gaps Um, Hmm. there, especially among families that are really the most vulnerable in our community.
1: Letitia Springer, when we first spoke and I asked you this question, I asked you to give a personal story and about the folks that you were all helping and the feedback that you received. Here you have an idea where we have a, a refrigerator it's open to the community, people have access to it. And you said you were, you were, in a sense, blown away by the response and the feedback that you got. I want you to share some of that feedback with this audience.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing I was immediately thinking of as we were talking about the refugees and the undocumented population, we currently have six locations in Atlanta with community fridges, one of which is maybe 10 steps away from the Mexican consulate. Um, off of Buford Highway. So that's one of our locations. And so that population depends on our community fridge over there. And so that's actually one of the most, that that refrigerator is emptied at least every 30 minutes to every hour. We fill it up, it's full. And then someone goes back 30 minutes later and shoots another picture, it's empty. It's another level of need. Like I I tease people on, on our Instagram group that And that location, it's a whole, it's next level need. So I think when you look at the network, we don't have all of the data because our fridges are open access. So I don't know exactly how many people are visiting our fridges, Mm -hmm. but we know that we fill up the refrigerator and the pantry area and every one to three hours, it's empty and it needs to be filled again. Um, And that's at all of our locations. And so when we think of what the need is in Atlanta, it's humongous and it just continues to grow. And in the undocumented populations, that's just, hmm. I don't even, <laughs> it's difficult to even quantify and um, to express in words just how much need it is in that community and in our city as a whole. Um, the stories that we hear of people who haven't worked since March and are coming to the fridges to feed their family Um, I'm hearing a lot of stories of people saying that their benefits have been reduced or discontinued and um, or there's certain things they can and can't get or they're having issues with the application. So I think while the system is in place, there are a lot of people who are struggling within this system and they're using our community fridges because they're open access. You don't have to apply. You don't have to ask for permission. Anyone can just go to the fridge and take food out um, I think it's really helping to fill that gap that mm-hmm. exists and in, in the built, the way the system is built currently.
1: Blake Osborne, Letitia talking about the system and, and Director Rawlings talked about it. Mike has given some numbers. Yes, we know there's a process and there's always a system, but there seems to be also a disconnect when it comes to understanding the need is urgent. How do you see, I guess, bettering that process, whether it's between grassroots organizations like Letitia's and what you all are doing, working with with the state or, or or even on the federal level, how does that process need to be improved?
3: And that's a really great question, right? And that's something that we're taking a deep dive into. We actually have a uh, team of students who are. Uh, college students from, from the AUC who actually are on a community health team who are conducting research and trying to generate the very answer to that question. But I would say that from our perspective, and again, our demographic and the people that we're predominantly serving are college students, is it has to be an institutional and a um, organizational effort right Mm -hmm. Uh, coupled with politics which is why it's so difficult right but you have situations for example in the AUC and I'm very grateful for the relationships with our partner schools because they're doing a phenomenal job trying to deal with this issue but just imagine you have college students that were struggling for food prior to COVID now they're dispersed displaced back home some of them were relying on financial aid or other resources on Mm -hmm. campus to help them mitigate food insecurities to help them get by pay their rent do what they needed to do those resources are gone so now they're Mm -hmm. coupled with the challenge of trying to attend classes trying to increasingly better themselves to put them in a better position yet the resources are not available now and they're struggling now so how do you meet that need now i think that on the one hand one uh aspect that we've been really excited about is trying to find ways to bring more food options to these college students, right? To bring Mm -hmm. more availability, whether that's uh, increasing the number of grocery stores in areas, whether that's talking with schools and developing ways to maybe find um, open pantries on campuses or expand dining hall options, which is uh, not to get into another rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. But for college students in particular, if you think about it, a lot of the times when you were eating in college it was in the dining hall Mm -hmm. but if those options are not available to you now how are you solving that what do you how are you going to get food so maybe trying to figure out ways to bring more uh open dining halls up more talking to institutions about expanding the hours maybe putting more restaurants or more available options that students can either use their uh school benefits or financial aid to help them with there's so many different ways To try to meet this problem. But I think to answer your question directly, and I apologize if I went on a tangent. No, it's okay. But it has to start with looking and identifying that these students, these are our children, these are our nieces and nephews, you know, and they're hungry. And we have to do what we can in any way that we can to get food to them. And whether that's pantries, whether that's donations, whether that's drop offs, and or whether that's institutional change. Mm -hmm. Um, We just have to address it and be willing to take on those steps.
1: There's more Coffee Conversations in just a moment. We'll continue after this.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF
1: You're listening to a special edition of Closer Looks Coffee Conversations. I'm Rose Scott. Hunger in America was a crisis pre pandemic, and now even more households are in need. That includes the Atlanta area and, of course, throughout Georgia. As we return to the panel discussion, I'm joined by Robin Channon, Executive Director of Global Growers, Mike Carnathan, Atlanta Regional Commission Head of Research and Analytics, Blake Osborne, Director of Programming for the Lowry Institute, Tom Rawlings, director of the state division of family and Children's services, and Letitia Springer, founder of the Free 99 Fridge, it's a local grassroots effort to provide free food in neighborhoods using refrigerators. Letitia, I think this is a question for you. Where can folks take food if they want to donate food for your program?
2: We keep it very simple um, because, again, the whole principle is to allow open access, and this is community-focused, community-centered. We're all about the people, so. Uh the best way to keep up with what's happening with the movement is our Instagram account, which is Free99Fridge. And for location information, donation guidelines, all of that good stuff, that can be found on our website, free99fridge.com. Uh, we do have just some restrictions just to kind of keep healthy food options in the refrigerator. We don't allow raw meat and things like that. And so all of that can be found on the website, free99fridge.com. And as I said, we have six locations throughout Atlanta.
1: All right. And Robin, what about what you all are doing at Global Growers? Where do you get your food from? I know you get it from the folk that are also involved, but do you get any additional food for distribution here?
4: Sure. We So we have a network of nine farm and garden sites around DeKalb County across 22 acres um, where more than 300 families are growing food for themselves, for their families, and also for local marketplaces. Um, so the majority of the food that, that's grown across our network is consumed by those food insecure families who are, are growing it. Um, and then they are also selling it through a variety of distribution channels in order to earn um, supplemental income for their families. And there's two things I want to highlight that are significant about all that food that's being being grown. Um, one is that you know we really see food security as not just about having enough food to eat, but it's also about having the right foods, foods that are familiar to you um, and foods that make you feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's one of the things that's significant uh, it, with our production is all of the different cultural foods that are grown, that are difficult or hard to find uh, here in Atlanta. The second thing um, that's significant is the amount of cost savings that families experience when they grow their own food. So we'll regularly hear from families and we have larger garden plots than than most community gardens do. Um, And so even over the summertime especially, families will let us know that they're not needing to buy fresh vegetables at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And that means that their food stamps that they rely upon can go further. Uh, and that is that significant. So they are um, those the food stamps that they receive are, are essential for them to meet the, the food and health needs of their families. Um, but their gardens are allowing them to have an average of eight hundred and fifty dollars of savings at the grocery store each year. Um, and then for many families, they're also earning supplemental income um, by selling that food in, in local markets.
1: Director Rollins, I have a question for you. Can folks use their SNAP benefits at farmer's markets?
0: There are a number of farmer's markets that do participate in the P, in the EBT program. Here's a
1: great question from Nancy who asked about the use of the term food insecurity. And she says, quote, it doesn't quite resonate with the general population. Have you found that to be true? It's so critical to ensure that our broad community understands this issue can take action. Blake, you are in agreement.
3: Because yes, one of the things uh, predominantly with the population that we serve college students is there's also this stigma. Um, And we were talking about this the other day and addressing that with students that don't want to be identified Mm -hmm. as, you know, going to a food pantry or how they're dealing with that socially. And so I really love that question because while I agree that the term food insecure or food security, May seem like it's not encompassing enough. Um, for us, it really comes down, it's almost a social justice issue, right? I mean, to mm-hmm. put it quite bluntly it, being food insecure, not having access to food, however we choose to label it, it's one of the major social justice issues of our time because it predicates your ability in many ways to advance and to do anything um i heard one of our esteemed panelists mention earlier that it's like a canary in a coal mine and Mm -hmm. i love that metaphor because it does highlight other problems and it highlights other forms of injustice so i would just say sorry the reason why i was nodding so hard is i was thinking about that conversation i was having with some college students about dealing with stigma Mm -hmm. and dealing with attitude towards asking for help or needing help or trying to be in a position to advance yourselves. Because what we have found is the majority of the population we're serving, the people we're trying to help, they're not people who who are beggars. They're not people who are trying to take something from society that does not belong to them. They're simply just trying to survive. And as students in particular, they're simply trying to advance themselves. They're trying to focus on things that 20 year olds and 18 year olds should be focused on. We want our students to go to class. We -hmm. want our students to get good grades so they can get a good job. We say all these platitudes, but then we don't think about the impact. But, for example, in Georgia, for college students to be eligible for SNAP, there is a work requirement for many of them. Mm -hmm. But in order to work, I then have to take time away from studying. And then if I take time away from studying, my GPA may drop a little bit and now I lose my scholarship. And then if I lose my scholarship and then you get this whole chain that we're seeing. And so then this becomes part of that identity. And that's why I challenge it as a social justice issue to look at this, not just in terms of, as it's been stated, well, making sure people have access to food, Mm -hmm. but just making sure they have access to their basic rights, which then give them the ability to uplift themselves and to feel better about themselves in the society that they're trying to frame.
1: Director Rollins, I know you're not responsible for the criteria or the eligibility that comes out of Washington. If there were some changes to SNAP program that you feel need to happen, what
0: would those changes be? I would say that, that what we really need to be doing is making sure that we are continuing the idea that when you, if you need these benefits, that you can use them to order food online. I I think that will be permanent. I'm pretty sure about that. Mm
5: -hmm.
0: Certainly, we need to, especially at this point, need to be supporting our food banks more. We talk with our food banks all the time, and we know that they are in in significant need of additional uh, resources, uh, both private and public donations. Uh, Rose, you may know that uh, some of the funds that were coming from the What I'd call the trade war offset, the -hmm. fact that U.S. farmers were uh, being hurt by perhaps some of the trade negotiations or trade war with China. Some of those benefits uh, that the food banks had been relying on are going to go away. So we need to make sure, especially that they are getting the commodities, the food, the funding that they need to do their part. We can do our part as a state agency in, in issuing monetary benefits. But there are plenty of folks out there who, they may be undocumented, they may not be eligible for food stamps for some reason or another, but we need to make sure that they are actually able to get food on their plates.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, because according to our research, the average SNAP household receives just about $256 a month. Now, if that is true, you and I know that that is not a lot.
0: So this is one reason that I think we're looking at, uh, Congress is looking at, at uh, increasing that, the amount of that benefits. One of the things that they have done during the pandemic is our P-Stamp program. So to give you an example, an elderly person who uh, you know, may have gotten, may be on Social Security, may have some retirement income, before the pandemic may have received only, say, $30 or $40 a month in food stamps based upon their income. That, what do you do with that? Uh, It's a help, but it's not that much of a help. So Congress authorized the SNAP program, which allows us to give each household uh, the maximum for that household size regardless of their income. So that means that the single senior person went from getting maybe $20, $30 a month to getting $194 a month. And I think that there's some benefit to looking at expanding that policy generally Um, So that we are, you know, we're we're giving to those who need, but we're also recognizing that sometimes your stated income does not necessarily reflect Mm -hmm. the amount of need in your household.
1: Robert, I want you to weigh in on that and what I just recited to the director Rawlings there about that. The average SNAP household receiving two hundred and fifty six dollars a month.
4: Sure, yeah, it, it's it's not enough. We all know that um, one of the, there is even uh, out there, it's become popular to issue these food stamp challenges where it will challenge people who are not on food stamps to try and structure a weekly or a monthly budget and see if they can pull together meals on that mm-hmm. um, just to show how difficult it is. Uh, We also know this, and I think our our data dude can do a much better job than I can, but we know that the most efficient way to address hunger economically is through food stamps. It costs less to give a family food stamps, and they can get more food than it does to send it through a food bank system. Mm -hmm. Um, Those food bank systems are still needed. The work Letitia is doing is essential and necessary, but they're Band-Aids, and they're a little bit of expensive Band-Aids, too. Mm -hmm. And so I think food stamps are an essential program. Uh, Local organizations, and this exists around the country, but here in Georgia, we're lucky to have groups like Wholesome Wave Georgia Mm -hmm. that will double the value of food stamps using private dollars. Uh, Global Growers is a, is a partner of Wholesome Way of Georgia, and that means that we can essentially sell our food at half price mm. to families using food stamps.
1: Here's a question I'm going to throw out to the group. And someone said to me, Rose, this is a crisis, but this is something that can be solved. It's not like we're trying to address a disease. This is something that can be solved, hunger in this country. Leticia, I'll let you begin with that.
2: Uh, I definitely think it can be solved. So I'm very optimistic. I think it won't be solved by policy. And EBT is essential only if it is accessible to the people who actually need it. I think there are way too many hoops and challenges for people who actually need it to get it. And therefore it makes it kind of obsolete. And so while it might be considered a band-aid solution for food pantries and grassroots efforts without those, a lot of people wouldn't be eating because it's going to take probably decades, centuries, I don't know, I might be dead, before policy and government catches up with the need, not to mention the underlying debate as to whether the government really wants to solve poverty.
5: Hmm. I don't know
2: if they actually want to solve that. But I think as humans, we should want to solve it. So I think the grassroots efforts are what are going to solve this problem and very well can solve it because there's enough food for everyone and eating should not be a privilege.
1: Mike, Letitia says it won't be solved through policy. What do you make of that?
5: Yeah, I just want
2: to, can, can I just say
5: what Letitia says? Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, if you look at the data before the pandemic, um, food insecurity was still there. Mm -hmm. housing insecurity was still there generations and generations of families have been in poverty um, before the pandemic and you know i mean i think what's incumbent upon us and you know i mean i'm typically even though all the data that i always provide is 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 depressing it's a downer but i'm a fairly optimistic guy i I Mm -hmm. do think that we can there's some lessons that we can learn from this pandemic to, to get us into a better place on the other side but we have to learn those lessons hmm. um, so you know and, and you know it just goes back to that old adage you know never let a never let a good crisis go to waste hmm. there are definite lessons that we can be learning here to nudge that system into a better place
1: director Rollins is too much emphasis or expectation placed on policy? And through agencies like yours, you're responsible for an entire population in the state. You can't do it alone, obviously.
0: No, of course not. And, and of course, I think folks need to remember that I think the, the role of a government agency here is to help folks not only address food insecurity, but also move to a point of financial independence, for food independence. And that, so we do that through our uh education and training programs that we have with Goodwill, for example, with North Georgia, we have a wonderful program with them. And then I also think that at, at its base, it's folks like Letitia and Robin and Blake and their community-based programs where people are just being generous with others. It's really gonna, uh, I think, bolster that. Um, you know, Government can help, but government policy cannot solve every issue because the truth is that government tends to treat things as widgets. You know, we, we put out a policy, we issue this amount of benefits, we put in these criteria for of those benefits, whereas individuals, groups, churches, community-based organizations can really work more with the individual and help each individual.
1: For Blake, I know the Lowry Institute, this is just one initiative that you all are involved in. How do you see this being, if it's, if we're looking for community organizations to help solve this and not policy, you all need resources.
3: But I would say, in honesty, um, to answer the previous question and the question that you have just asked, I think uh, not to speak for other community organizations, but I think, yes, community organizations have a role and we may be the first line of defense uh, in meeting these people, meeting people in need right uh, on the ground. But I would say, I think that the role that the government can play in this is in some ways, eliminating the barriers that tie our hands and restrict our ability to actually help people on the ground. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, we may be able to give people in need, whether they're college students, whether they're seniors, whether it's somebody else, actually direct access to the help, because I agree, there's no reason for people in this country to go hungry. There's plenty of food, Mm -hmm. there's enough resources to go around. It's not allocated properly, but it exists. And the fact that it exists in that capacity means that there's a role for the government to try to help us with that and so i firmly believe that yes one thing that we're doing we're focused on not only on food pantries on bringing food to college students but also on ways to give them more resources to give them more access to things whether it's easier um, access to education whether we're training them through our uh, collegiate tank program to start their own entrepreneurship ideas and pursue excellence through these and uh, through our change agent program where we're trying to train and develop to be future leaders, right? This is our view that each one of these facets is related, that you cannot overcome one obstacle by neglecting others. You have to meet all the challenges that are ahead. And that to me is where not to push back too strongly, but the role of government and institutions can help.
1: Uh, Robin, I'll let you address that in terms of this should not be an issue. This is something that can be solved in the United States talk about hunger yes
4: this this should not be an issue you cannot talk about food security without talking about inequality you cannot talk about hunger without talking about nutrition and you cannot talk about nutrition without talking about farm policy a country with billionaires should not have hungry people period We are seeing, uh, and we can't disconnect this from increase in the corporate consolidation of our food system. And we really saw the impacts of that this spring. We And consumers became keenly aware of this. I think that many of us on this call have probably been aware of this for a while, but this spring when we saw grocery store shelves go empty Mm -hmm. and For small local food producers, that was a real opportunity to demonstrate the position they were in to address this problem. Mm -hmm. Um, When the power of our food system is controlled by just a handful of food companies, when their work is disrupted, that impacted millions of people. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that Our farm policy does need to catch up to this because we do not produce enough fruits and vegetables in this country for people to meet the federal dietary guidelines. We produce calories Mm -hmm. in the form of abundant corn, soy, wheat, heavily subsidized products that go in to create food-like products or food additives. But those, that is not the nutrition that children and families need to just to meet their, I think mm-hmm. Letitia said this earlier, this is a basic fundamental human right.
1: Director Rawlings, I want to start with you. What is your takeaway from this pandemic that you hope will bring more awareness to food insecurity? And not only just bring awareness, because it's nice to say, oh, look, this is a problem, but then we've got execution.
0: Um that getting benefits out to people uh, should not require them to come into an office, should not require them to go to a grocery store. Um, And I, and I would agree with some extent, I I think our food banks are very valuable, but I do agree with Robin that the the more efficiently we can get funds out to people that they can use when they are food insecure and make it easier for them to apply for those funds, you know, whatever the limits may be, whatever Mm -hmm. the, uh, credentials they may need to get at the uh, income level, et cetera. But let's make that as easy as possible. Let's make it, uh, at least let's make the access to those benefits available to all who qualify for them. And then let's also do everything we can to, to use our modern technology, whether it's in making that system more efficient. So we're doing these applications in a timely and accurate manner, but mm-hmm. it's linking all our systems as we've done so that we can, uh, we can immediately identify whether you're, you are qualify or not without you having to put in, give us a lot of paperwork, for example. And then when you get the benefits, let's make them widely usable at places like farmers markets or online.
1: Absolutely. Mike, coming out of this pandemic, your takeaway?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things that I've been thinking about. You know,
5: if you look at the pandemic, I mean, just how the overwhelming response to to need in this community was incredible. I mean, community organizations, local governments, I mean, it was, I don't wanna use the unprecedented again, but hey, it's still 2020, so I get to use it for a couple more weeks. But I mean, it really was unprecedented about how much we as a community care about each other. But that leads me to the second part. It also, it really exposes how vulnerable we are about how quickly You know, I mean, yes, the pandemic, yeah, it it took down economic output just to to levels we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. But it also strikes me about just how quickly we fell into crisis. And so that's why, you know, one of the things that we keep talking about is, yes, let's get through this pandemic. Let's continue to celebrate the heroic efforts out there of people getting food to people, getting people getting health to people. But once we're on the other side of this, let's really do a deep dive diagnosis into our system. Mm -hmm. And let's make sure that it's a little bit strengthened for the next crisis. So we don't have to continue this cycle of, you know, just crisis
1: response. Hmm. Blake, thank you, Mike, for that. Thank you so much, Blake.
3: Um, For me, I think, I, I love what the other panelists have said and I completely agree with it. I think for me, what this pandemic has done is it revealed what, we uh, all knew existed prior to this, right? I mean, there mm-hmm. were, everybody has said we knew that there were, was inequality. We knew that there was hunger. We knew that there were people, whether they were seniors or college students who were struggling with food insecurity prior to this. And now the pandemic has kind of laid that bare and made it, uh, he laid it in front of us and we all are forced now to deal with it. And I'm hoping that through the midst of this crisis, through the midst of this disaster, that This spirit of now that we're forced to deal with the problem, we continue it on past whatever resolution of this current crisis is. Right, So it's my hope that these conversations will continue. It's my hope that we'll actually look out and see our vulnerable populations and to identify with them and be able to name and state, these are our vulnerable populations. There mm-hmm. shouldn't be college students choosing between books and and food. There shouldn't mm-hmm. be seniors choosing between prescription medicine co-pays and vegetables. The fact that we can openly state that now comfortably with each other means that we should be able to get to a point in our discourse, whether we're looking for government solutions, organizational solutions or institutional reform of systems that we can all collectively agree regardless of any uh, affiliations, regardless of any partisanship, regardless of anything that say, hey, this is a problem. We uh, we saw the problem, it came up, we can collectively agree this should not happen again. We should never be in a position where, where a large swath of our populations are hungry. We can all identify, name, state that. So hopefully out of this crisis and out of this disaster, as I would say, we can actually address meet, and solve a problem all
1: right leticia
2: yeah i i loved everything blake just said <laughs> i was thinking the same um i think what 2020 has taught us is that no one's coming to save us certainly not the government and we have to look out for each other and so regardless of what your religion is your economic status any of that none of that matters at this point we have to all recognize that we're a community and we're in this together And so if we don't support each other, who's gonna support us? And I think mutual aid for that reason is so much more important, and which is why we've gotten as much traction as we have in the five months that we've existed. It's because people recognize that we're in this together Mm -hmm. and we have to band together to support each other, to make it happen. And if we continue to rely on the same solutions, I'm using air quotes, (laughs) the solutions that we've been relying on for decades, centuries, whatever, we're gonna to continue to get the same results. So I think 2020, not only have we learned, innovation is gonna be key to solving these long standing problems. This isn't new to the other panelists point. Like we knew that there was food insecurity prior to 2020, before COVID came along, people were hungry. And so we have to continue to try other things. Um, social experimentation is gonna be really important. Self-reliance and community is gonna get the job done, I believe.
1: And Robin, I'll give you the last word.
2: Sure. so we we've it's been said by everyone already you
4: know these certain truths were really crystallized in 2020. Um, but these are not new issues. Uh, I think one of the things this this panel really identified today is that inequality is the kind of underlying core problem that we're reckoning with here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for better or worse, I think that as a society this year, we've become more fluent in talking about that issue. And Mm -hmm. I can only hope that this time that we have spent as individuals can rise up to that level of societal change that we want to see where we are all able to agree that, hey, this is not the way things should be. We can do better. What is the world that we want to live in? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, food is something that impacts all of us. Um, again, for me, I can't talk about food without talking about farms. And so, what's on my mind right now is is a quote by a writer and farmer, Wendell Berry, that eating is an agricultural act. Uh, and I think that that's something we can all sit with and, and remember. And um, you know, and as we talk about food and farms and hunger, I think that we all should be looking to the USDA, to the new leadership that's coming in. They are the ones that are responsible for both the food stamp programs, hunger, nutrition, and farm policies. And we have, you know, this group here today has identified the strings that are attached among all those issues and how we can approach that on a with a whole on a whole systems level and advocating for, for the change that we know is needed and know is possible.
1: Robin Shannon, Executive Director of Global Growers. Mike Carnathan, Atlanta Regional Commission Head of Research and Analytics. Blake Osborne, Director of Programming for the Atlanta-based Lawry Institute. The Director of the State Division of Family and Children Services, Tom Rawlings. Letitia Springer, founder of the Free 99 Fridge. Thank you all for being part of this very important community conversation. Thank you for carving out this time. Uh, You had some other stuff I know you could have been doing, but we appreciate it. The community appreciates it. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Knavey. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.